Hey there, if you guys listen close, you might hear this. It's not the, it's not the wind noise. It's it's the engine in Wheeler's car revved up to like nine nine thousand RPMs. We're, we're not the case. We're <laughs> right now as I look, honestly, we are exact we're one mile an hour under the speed limit. Do you see that? Uh, yeah, the only reason we're one mile an hour under the speed limit is because we're, we're stuck in a bunch of semi-trucks here. We're caged in on I-35 between a bunch of semis going probably too fast. We're we're heading south for this episode of Yolitics, going to Austin uh, to interview the CEO of ERCOT. Uh, but before we get there, hopefully we'll get there. We've only almost we died one, one time. No, no, no. We haven't died any times or almost died any times. We will get there. Uh, it's just a question of will we get coffee before we get there. We've gotten off of this freeway like five times, and none of the coffee runs have worked out yet. So we'll see. Can, can you hear the, 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 the rage in Wheeler's voice here as he's trying to find coffee? Well, I, I need it today because, um, you know, the CEO of ERCOT, he's got a big job, right? And, you know, running the electric grid here in Texas, and he's not going to have a beer with us, which I get, you know, it's, it's a little weird sometimes for people that we have a beer with the podcast if they're on the job. And plus, so we're plus, not going to have one either. Plus, it's 8 a.m., so uh, I don't know about you, but most people don't drink at 8 a.m. Well, yeah, we've done it before. Uh, so the thing is, is that you have to have coffee as a replacement. And if it's 8 a.m. and we're almost to Austin, that means that I got up this morning at 5. I don't do that. And in our site is a coffee shop. Look at that. So we'll be to Austin here shortly and introduce you to the guy that runs the Texas Electric Grid, Pablo Vegas. This is where Texas politics gets interesting. Here again are two guys named Jason, some great guests, and cold Texas beer for another smart conversation on Yolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas. Hey, so we finally made it to Austin. Wheeler did not kill us on the way down here, even though we made it in record time, about 90 minutes from it, Dallas we to Austin. We were not moving that fast. Actually, you know, one of the toll roads that we're on, as people has know. Has no speed limit, right? It does have a speed limit. See, that's what, what the difference between us right by. there. That's why I drove. Uh, but it has an 80 mile an hour speed limit. I think it's the, the top speed limit in Texas, if I'm not mistaken. That one is. And, and you, if anyone would know, Wheeler would know this. Uh, so, hey, we, we are with the president and CEO of ERCOT, Pablo Vegas. Thanks for being here today. We appreciate your time. Yeah, it's great to be here with both of you. And, and just so folks know ERCOT, there's a lot of new listeners, and we appreciate that, whether you're watching us on uh, on YouTube or whether you're downloading this episode. ERCOT operates the Texas Electric Grid, 26 million customers. You're keeping the lights on for 90% of the state. So thank you for that. But let's get right to it. The, the, the summer, as everyone knows, is challenging. I'm sure you've answered this question plenty of times. We had a, what, a dozen? conservation alerts had 11 conservation calls this summer most of them them. in the back half of the summer the the, the lights didn't go off the ac kept running fortunately i know you guys are really glad about that winter though begins in five or six weeks from now how concerned are you about winter well i can tell you that the minute the summer ended we started our preparations and planning for the winter because essentially we go from one peak season to another peak season in the middle there's a little bit of a typically a, a lull in the weather however during those lulls is when all the power plants that have been running like dogs through the entire summer have to take their maintenance outages. And so even in the shoulder months, there's uh, you know potential for tight days because of that fact. So we are, um, we're doing a lot of things to prepare for this winter. And, and I can tell you,
tell you, I, I think the grid is going to be as ready as it's ever been coming into this winter. Mm -hmm. There's a few things that have changed since last winter, that, which I think are going to be pretty helpful. Um, one of them is we've got this weatherization program. It started right after winter storm Uri. The legislature put in place this requirement to weatherize and for us to inspect power plants and transmission facilities to make sure that they could operate under any weather condition, heat or cold. So that, we that weatherization inspection program begins in December. It's on its second iteration of a program, meaning it's gotten even more stringent with more requirements. Um, and so we're going to be going out and starting that process. And if you ask me what is the one most significant change since Winter Storm Uri that has happened to help prevent that from ever happening again, it's the weatherization program. Now, of course, Winter Storm Uri, especially for people who uh, have only been living here in Texas for several months, perhaps, uh, happened back in February of 2021. Uh, I, I can't even remember how many straight hours we went through in the deep freeze here where we were below 32 degree, degrees, and in some cases, significantly below that. Uh, and what happened in that uh, incident was that you know, a lot of folks lost power uh, on the grid, um, you know, because you basically had to send them into, uh, you know, a, a, an outage to That's keep right. the grid from failing entirely. Uh, and I know that was before your time, but we had, you know, 246 people, I believe it was officially, uh, who died uh, in That's that right. storm. Some estimates put it much higher than that. Some people freezing inside their own homes as it got so cold. And of course, billions and billions in damages. Um, that is a worst case scenario. Uh, but you all have put out a forecast for this December, uh, and you've said that, you know, even if we have a cold snap like we saw last December, which was not nearly as bad as what we saw during URI, we could see even like a 14% chance, depending on the hour of day, that we might have to do more of those forced outages. How do you feel about those top line numbers? So it's, it's concerning for me. And, and the fact is that what, what's happening in Texas is that we're seeing the growth on the electric demand happening consistently year after year. That growth is happening and it's good and, and it's for good reasons. It's because the economy is growing in Texas. It's because the population is growing in Texas. So it's, it's really, um, it's a characteristic of all the great things that are happening in Texas, why we're seeing that growth. But with growth comes a demand on infrastructure. And it's, you know, the energy system, the roads, the schools, the, the hospitals, everything is, is getting, you know, pushed to, to meet that demand. And so on the, on the, uh, to meet that demand, there's different ways to do that. You can either build new supply to meet that demand, or you can find ways to curb that demand through things like demand response. And both of them are viable pathways. What we're seeing in Texas is that the growth in the energy supply is very similar to the growth that the rest of the country is experiencing, which is a lot of growth in renewables, and now, most re more recently, growth in batteries, mm -hmm. all of which is great. And I, I want to start by saying I think that's, that we, we appreciate and we highly value all of those types of resources. However, during long winter events, when you've got sustained days of cold weather, you don't always have the availability of those kinds of sources. And so you need another kind of source, which is your traditional thermal dispatchable resource. That's a coal plant, a gas plant, a nuclear facility. And we haven't really seen much of that come online, or have we seen any come that's, online? That's the problem, that we haven't seen a lot of that type of resource growth in the last 10 years in Texas. And it's because it's been outpaced so heavily by renewables. And so, 
that's the issue we're trying to deal with and why those numbers are creeping up that you see in the winter is that as that demand continues to grow and we don't have that dispatchable generation growing at the same pace, the risk keeps going up each season that we could get to a place where we won't have enough supply to meet demand. And that's what we're really focused on and working with regulators and policymakers to ensure that the market incentivizes that going forward. And particularly on social media, you'll see a lot of criticism of, of renewables. Um, talk a little bit about though, you know, we went through this summer, you mentioned we had 11 uh, calls for conservation um, mm -hmm. during the summertime, which, you know, Texas, you know, expects hot summers. Um, how much did renewables save you uh, on a lot of those days? Well, uh, the renewables played a critical part of the whole uh, story this summer. So one of the things that really changed, uh, this summer was a very different summer than prior summers. For the first time, the riskiest periods this summer weren't during the hottest times of the day. For every year prior in Texas, the riskiest time in the summer was always at the peak heat, around 4 o'clock during the afternoon. That wasn't the case this year, and the reason was because we've seen so much growth in solar. So as solar has been growing on the grid, it is typically performing during that peak time, and so it has picked up those peaks, and it's handling it very well. It's helping us get through those peaks. The risky period is now when the sun sets. Hmm. When the sun sets on a very hot stretch of time, like we have throughout the summer, it's still near 100 degrees at 8, 9 o'clock at night. And at those temperatures, ACs are still running. And we have between, you know, any time uh, on a summer day, 12, 13,000 megawatts of solar. When that disappears and you're still at 100 degrees, it has to get backfilled by something. Mm -hmm. And that's why those, those tight periods move to the afternoon. So the renewables were a, a big part of the story. But I don't want to underscore how important the, you know, all of the resources were. Batteries played a really important part helping us manage those ramps. And the, thermal, uh, the, the traditional thermal fleet performed fantastic this summer. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were really available when we needed them too. You mentioned thermal, which is coal and, and natural gas, and you say dispatchable. These are just terms, so our, our, our listeners will know what these yeah. are. Dispatchable means you can turn on and off. That's right. You can control when you and use them. Night if you have exactly. to. Exactly. With the renewables, we call them intermittent because they basically run when their fuel source is available. For wind, it's when the wind blows. For right. sun, it's when the sun shines. And, and Pablo, we, we all saw uh, in the recent election, Proposition 7, that, that, that passed overwhelmingly. Um, it, it, it essentially uh, creates a, a, a fund five billion dollars i believe and it says hey if you own a, a power plant and, and you want to build a brand new natural gas one we'll give you a low interest loan to do this I, i'm curious uh, number one do you think that that companies will do that because as jason said there has been a a, a, a lull in companies building new dispatchable uh, thermal plants and secondly how soon would something like, like that come online so I, I'm, I'm very hopeful that the passing of Proposition 7 is going to lead to some, the development of new dispatchable generation. When you think about, you know, what's causing that disparity that you brought up, the, the issue that we've seen is that the economics, economics in Texas drive what gets built in Texas. The, right. the profitability of a power plant uh, potential is what drives what gets built. And right now, the most profitable potential is with solar, wind, and batteries because there are a lot of incentives and subsidies offered for those kinds of resources. They come through the federal government in the form of production tax credits, things like that. So that's kind of put a finger on the scale helping to drive the growth in those resources, which again, the growth in those resources is not the problem. It's the lack of growth in the balance mm -hmm. of the other kinds of resources that's the challenge. So this 
Proposition 7 creates an incentive, a low interest loan, 3% uh, interest rate for 20 years on uh, for somebody who wants to develop a dispatchable generation plant. I'm very hopeful that it will lead to development. It, it lowers the hurdle to do, do so. Do you have any indication that any company's going to do it? Has, has anyone it's a little said early. It's a little early right now, I, I, and, and folks have been kind of waiting to see if it passes and how it's going to get kind of administered. Right. So it's it's uh, so far we haven't seen anything new because but we're of talking that. years away. If I mean you don't just pop one of these up overnight. That's right. In order to build a power plant anywhere, you have to get air permits. You got to get water permits. You have to order the materials. At least you're looking at least three years, probably a little bit more than that for most uh, in most cases. Aren't there in fact some incentives built in that if someone can actually bring this power online before 2029? Is it? There's two tiers actually. There's a, a date in mid 2026 where you get a higher bonus if you can complete a power plant, and then there's another one in 2029 that's a little bit of a lower tier bonus. But yeah, it has two facets to it. It's the low interest loan and a completion bonus if you can get it done quickly. So that gives an idea of what the runway is for putting one of these things up. It's not that's like right. building a house, for example. Um, and, and I was speaking to one industry expert who was saying, uh, okay, well, you know, it does take years. I mean, these things take a while to build. And, and what he was saying was, this December figure where we're looking at, which you said, you know, is a concern that, you know, there could be some forced outages uh, because, you know, of supply and demand. He says every December going forward until you are able to bring on more of those resources, you may see that number go up. Is that It's possible, correct? but we're not going to just stop and wait to see what gets built. There's other things that we're going to be focused on. I mentioned demand side is the other side. So there's two sides of this equation. The reduction of a megawatt is the same is the same effectively on the grid as the addition of a megawatt. So well, what we, is a megawatt roughly? So a megawatt homes? will will power about 200 homes on average in Texas. That's kind of the average statistic. We peaked this summer at 85,000 megawatts. Was the a little over that was the the new summer peak. So it kind of gives you a sense of the scale that we're talking about. And so if you can find a way to uh, incentivize people to reduce usage at those peak times, there should be a real value to people doing that. Today, we pay large industrials who are in programs to reduce their demand at points in time when we are scarce. If we could expand those programs to include residential consumers, small businesses, and have it structured something similarly, I think we could see some real benefit. Is on that, that going to happen? We've seen it in other states, and a lot of people have smart meters where you can do that. That's right. Uh, smart I meters, smart thermostats, sure. things that you can actually control within your usage in your house. And so we would need to work with uh, you know the participants here in the state, the retailers, with the Public Utility Commission, all of them to design these programs that would essentially do what you're describing. Uh, hmm. it, it, does the legislature have to create that framework? I don't think they. I don't think it requires a legislative change to enable yeah. that. That's something that a regulator should be able to put in place because we already have programs like that and it's really around codifying it and putting some better value around it because today um, there's not the equivalent value for doing so. Right. We, we started the, the episode here with, with the conservation calls and, and the summer, how close supply and demand got. How nervous were you? And secondly, how many times did your phone ring from the governor or lieutenant governor saying, what's going on, Pablo? Is this going to hold or what? It, I, I tell you, I get, I absolutely worry and have concerns every time we face those situations because there's just a lot of uncertainties that go into the grid operations. There's the uncertainties around, is the weather going to manifest the way we expect it to? We have great forecasts for wind and solar, but you know what? They are weather forecasts, and, and I'm sure you've probably experienced a change in a weather forecast from what you expected. So when that happens in our world, that can be pretty meaningful in how much electricity is available. So I worry about that a lot. Um, and I, 
and everybody that you mentioned worries about it too. I've spoken to the governor, to the lieutenant governor, and to the leadership in the in the house and the leadership in the commission. All of them are very, very engaged in what's happening during these periods of time. And do they call you or what? Sometimes, yeah. I've had I've had conversations with all of them uh, during period points of time during this summer and prior. Do you and ever call them and go, "Hey, heads up"? I do. I do. I like to make sure people are aware and uh, don't get surprised. So that's a, you know, that's a big part of my, a big part of my day is making sure that people that need to know what's going on, know what's going on and being able to be open and try to help people understand that. Do you feel like you explain yourself a lot? I do, but I, but I like to do that because what I think it's helpful when people understand what's actually going on, it demystifies it a little bit. And, and I get that people would be very concerned about you know the potential for the power go out and not understand why. I want people to understand what's going on and why it's happening and what they can expect. That's to me, if, they, if folks can understand that, it takes that worry level down a little bit, and then hopefully we can work our way through difficult situations. I've spoken to people at utilities uh, who were talking about this summer and, you know, during those conservation calls in particular, and how, you know, they will convene meetings uh, in, in conference rooms, and they're sort of going over action plans just in case of this or that or the other. You mentioned, you know, wind and solar and, and the forecasting with that. Uh, how much are you also keeping the other eye on the these thermal generation plants, as you said, a lot of them being put into overdrive. A lot of these are old plants. There haven't been new ones built in quite a while. How much are you looking at that? Because all it takes is one of those to go down when you're that tight, and there you are, you're in the red territory. Yeah, I mean, to to give you some perspective, about uh, 30 to 40% of the thermal generation fleet is over 30 years old, Mm. nearly 30% over 40 years old. So it's an aging fleet, and it's being worked hard. So it is something that uh, that is a concern. I, in addition to these other phone calls, I'm regularly on the phone with the operators of these power plant businesses, and we're talking specifics, you know, what What's your thought on this plant that I saw it went down, you know, yesterday evening for this type of a leak? Do you think it can come back by six o'clock tomorrow? Those kinds of discussions are happening on a regular basis. You're in the weeds. Yeah, we, uh, we're absolutely in the weeds because the, the difference of one power plant being running or not running can make a difference when it's a really tight day. People don't realize that the power plants are like your car or like your AC at home. They have to, the, the motor has to stop working for a little bit to, to rest and reset so you don't you know, blow a gasket out or something. Well, think about it. Thousands and thousands of moving parts that are 40, 50 years old in many cases, they're going to break. Yeah. And you need to be able to take time, fix them, and keep them running. Going back to this uh, this uh, proposition that passed, which will set aside money now to incentivize the, you know, the thermal plants, new thermal plants coming online, uh, I, I was speaking with an industry insider who said people will line up for this money. There will be, you know, investors, and, and there, this may get some, some plants built. Uh, they also, though, said that if someone gets in line and they're too late to get one of those, that they are less likely then to want to develop because now, you know, they can't compete against the great deal that company A got uh, by getting in and getting these incentives, and they might be less willing to invest. Is that a concern? I think it's a fair concern. When you're dealing with a competitive market, any little advantage or disadvantage can play a factor whether somebody's going to make an investment. And that's, I think, one of the concerns that we are always looking at. Whenever we make a change in the market design, there are ripple effects of that that are downstream. And we're always trying to think through what are all the potential implications of a change here or a tweak here, because we are changing the market structure often. You know, we 
two years ago after Winter Storm Uri, we started operating ERCOT with a more conservative posture around when we would bring power plants online in case things could get tight. That has an effect on the market because when a power plant's online, it has the potential to suppress the real-time price potentially. Mm -hmm. And so things like that, even though you look at it and go, well, that, that makes sense. It's a reliability, you know, some, you know, improve the reliability. But if it has a little bit of a downward pressure on the economics, that could have an impact. When I was talking to that expert, though, I said, do you think that people are going to line up for this money? And they're like, oh, yeah, th th this will be this will be used. It will you know, lead to more plants being developed. Uh, and in fact, uh, this legislature, they're going to have to come back in two years and add more money to it. And maybe two years later, again and again, uh, they were estimating that we'll need many billions more because of the needs that this state has. What's your thought on that? Well, I think that the folks are going to line up because obviously there is a good incentive in this uh, legislature. So I think that's really helpful. But the reality is the, the real incentive in Texas should be the growth. The fact is there's not a lot of places that are growing as fast as Texas is. And when you're in the energy business, what you want is consistent opportunity to sell your product. Because when you're not running your power plant, you're not making money. That's the nature of our market. So I think the growth that we're seeing is going to continue to create that demand profile. And if we can uh, make some changes over the coming years that will help to balance some of that imbalance in the economics and the incentives between renewables and dispatchable generators, I don't think you're going to need as much help with kind of an incentive fund in order for folks to do what they've done over time. Let me ask you again about something Jason said earlier. That's, you know, winter coming, and I think he asked about the, the 3,000 additional megawatts of reserve that, that ERCOT was looking for to make sure that, that our, our chances of controlled outages is minimal, if, if at all. Um, I, Last month, that announcement was made, hey, we need an extra 3,000 megawatts to, to get in the, the right spot there. Did I understand that the solution is to fire up some old coal-powered power, coal powered plants, coal-fired power plants, if needed? Well, it, is, is that the case? It was actually, so what we put forward was, and, and what we're doing with this is because of that elevated risk that you mentioned, yeah. we want to do everything we can to try to, minis to minimize that. And so this is really like an insurance product. We want to say buy you know, a little of insurance, but get some extra capacity available just in case we've got a winter storm, Elliott type of storm, which was what we went through last winter. And that was a pretty strong storm. It got pretty cold, if you all recall. Yeah. And, um, and so we wanted to get an insurance product to say, let's help us manage through some of those difficult types of events if they show up. We said all of the plants that had recently retired, mothballed, said they weren't going to operate for the winter. We sent a note out to them and said, hey, you all would be eligible if you could come back and operate. We don't expect a lot of them to be able to do so. In reality, it's probably much like, less likely that any of them will actually be able to do so. Because once a plant gets into a shutdown mode, it's really hard to turn that around and bring it back up and run safely and reliably. So is the 3,000 megawatts there then going into the winter? The, the well, the other need? side of what we asked for in that, in that RFP was for demand response, new demand response. Mm. So if retailers and um, uh, companies that do that kind of aggregated uh, demand response program, if they can bring to the table new demand response that they can demonstrate would it, be incremental. demand response is. Sorry, demand response is when, when there is a call to reduce energy, somebody actually can show that they can reduce energy. It could be as simple as a retailer in a city having a bunch of uh, controllable thermostats that people sign up for and get paid in order to allow the company to turn that thermostat up or down in order to manage energy at a peak time for, for an hour or two or three. And so 
if we can get 3,000 megawatts of demand response, that would also qualify. Do you have it yet then? Do you have the 3,000 We're actually megawatts? getting all of the bids from that RFP on the Friday of this week. And so we'll see what actually comes in. Well, do you think you'll, you'll be there? I mean, you, uh, you know, winter's still coming either way, right? Winter's coming either way. And we said, we'll, you know, we would consider buying up to 3,000. So that kind of was kind of the limit that we put. We'll see, that's a lot. That's a lot of de new demand yeah. response to show up and to, to, uh, to define in a, such a short period of time. So we're, uh, we're hopeful we get as much as we can, but it, it, we probably won't see a full 3,000. If you have to buy it, who pays for that insurance policy? I, I guess the ratepayers pay for it. You and I would pay for it. That's right. How much is it, how much more is it going to cost me this winter to get that extra three thousand megawatts on standby in case we need it? So good question, uh, and and you're right. All of the load, which is the consumers, uh, the the users of energy, they pay for virtually everything in the market. Everything that has a cost gets eventually flows down to to consumers. We don't know yet what it's going to cost, so we haven't set a budget. We purposefully didn't say this is the most we would pay because when you do that, you typically find all the off are right at that maximum level. Mm. So we thought, let's see what's out there. And because we expected it to be demand response, which is somewhat newer in terms of a, a way of doing this, there may be some creative pricing and offers out there that we didn't want to uh, prejudice. So we'll see as it comes in, we're gonna let everybody know what the offers were and how much we think it's gonna, well, how much it will cost. But uh, we wanna be reasonable. We recognize that you, know, you always have to buy it balance cost with all of the things that you do for reliability. But we think an insurance plan for this, this winter makes sense. And of course, a lot of those incentives right now are geared toward businesses, which you know consume a lot of power. Which brings me to cryptocurrency, uh, because you know there's been a lot of criticism about this. Uh, we have some crypto miners here in Texas, mm -hmm. you know, creating you know things like Bitcoin. Uh, and what happens is these are big data centers, and they're very power intensive. It, these computers are just running and running and running, and they consume an enormous amount of electricity. And some of them have gotten millions and millions and millions from ERCOT. Uh, because they have, you know, participated in these yeah, programs. They've lessened yeah. their demand when you're asking for them to. How sustainable is that? Well, first of all, do you know uh, a round figure for how much ERCOT has, has paid out for something like that, let's say, in, in this year? Not specifically to cryptocurrency, but but they, I would say the, the crypto business is, is kind of a unique business, and they're different than a lot of other big loads that are out there because they're they're very price responsive. Mm. So the, the whole Bitcoin business model is uh, a combination of the price of Bitcoin and the price of electricity. Mm -hmm. If you know those two factors, that then determines how they run their business. Right, they'll stop when power starts getting too expensive, correct? That's right, and yeah. when does power get expensive? When it's scarce. Yeah. So they really play in the market in a way that uh, can be helpful in terms of not putting strain on the system when the system is getting strained. But can the, can the state, can the grid afford more of these big centers popping up? I think there's one proposed now that would become the new largest in North America uh, here in Texas, consuming an enormous amount of power. Or can we continue to sustain that in, in your eyes? I, I don't have a point of view that, you know, Bitcoin is really anything different than any other kind of energy consumer from from just a, that I'm agnostic to to the whether it's the right thing to do to allow these kinds of businesses to grow. People, you know, if you're on the if you're a, in a Bitcoin business, you're going to say, well, 
every manufacturer that comes to Texas consumes energy and they don't all have the ability to reduce their power the way we do. Mm. Th there's a lot of arguments to be made on, on both sides of that. The way I look at it, it's an energy consumer. We have to meet the demands of our energy consumers in Texas. As long as the state enables these kinds of businesses to operate here, our job is to serve them regardless mm. of how they do so. Mm. And so that's how we look at it. And uh, and so we're, we're trying to work with those kinds of consumers to help them connect in more closely with us so we can actually help manage their use better so that it can be a help to the reliability. That's where it can really be a benefit. Crypto aside, how much did Texas pay this year, especially during those 11 uh, conservation events? How much did Texas pay to, to get these big users to, to shut down for a while to protect the grid? Our ancillary services this year were higher than they have been in other. So let me explain what ancillary services are. So there's the, the energy market here in Texas has kind of two main components to it. There's the energy market, which is essentially what the real-time price of energy is. Right. Most consumers don't pay that. Most consumers have a relationship with a utility company, a retail a retailer that they buy their energy from, and they typically have a fixed rate that they pay for that regardless of what the how hot or cold it is outside or what the wholesale price is. So the wholesale price of, of energy is not typically paid for by most consumers. Then you've got an ancillary services market, which is essentially the energy that we hold on the side to make sure that the grid stays reliable. So it's things that help to keep the frequencies uh, consistent. If we have a miss in a forecast, if wind doesn't show up when we expect it to, we need to have enough power to, to fill in that gap. So we hold these ancillary services on the side. Those types of ancillary services are what we call on when we've got these scarce periods. The price of those ancillary services were up about half a million dollars this year. I mean, half a billion dollars, about 500 and some million dollars because of the extreme tightness that we were experiencing mm -hmm. and the price of energy during all that went up quite a bit. So the prices are going up. As you get to scarcity sure. in the market, prices are going to go up and that's what we're seeing. And that's felt by everybody eventually. Eventually it is because eventually when you start thinking about how to put together an offer to sell your energy to consumers, you're going to factor in what you expect those pricing to be. And so eventually over time, we're going to see prices potentially go up you know, bit by bit uh, yeah. until we start to see some more supply. I was going to say that. We, we yeah. hear from consumers you know, residential consumers who say it just goes up and up and up. Does that continue uh, in, in your mind as we go forward, at least until, you know, a lot of new generation comes online? It's really a straight supply demand question and, and everything is becoming more electric oriented. So people are converting mm -hmm. their gas heaters into air sourced heat pumps and people yeah. are electrifying their cars and there's just a lot more electrification happening. That's just on the residential side. On the on the industrial side, it's happening even faster. So the, the big, more consumption, the more demand until we keep up with the supply, we're going to see pricing reflect that. You mentioned the ancillary services are up, what, 500 million this year? Incremental, this, yeah, this summer. What's the total check that, that you guys wrote this year? A little over, uh, I looked in the summer, I have the summer facts, and the summer data was a little over a billion dollars for the summer on the ancillary services. But on a, to give you perspective, on a typical energy cost year for ERCOT, the co the wholesale value of energy would be anywhere between 20 and $30 billion. Gotcha. I'm curious about as it gets colder outside, what you think about energy efficiency? Because you know, there, I'm sure there are plenty of houses. My house is 100 years old, and there are plenty of houses that that may not be as old, but that might leak air, or leak heat, and not not be able to to uh, to stay as warm. Have to use more electricity. Um, is there anything Texas lawmakers should do? Create any type of incentive to to get 
people to be more energy efficient? Energy efficiency is a, a great opportunity to help manage this issue we're talking about. But they need to be incentivized, don't they? They do, and uh, and there are. There are incentives. There's good incentive programs that are actually run today. They're, they're actually administered through the Com Public Utility Commission, and they actually go through your transmission and distribution companies. Mm -hmm. So the companies like Encore, Centerpoint, AMP, AEP, Texas, New Mexico Power, those companies administer these kinds of programs and offer incentives and rebates to make your house more efficient so that you would upgrade windows, upgrade insulation, upgrade uh, an older uh, heater or air conditioning system yeah. to one that's more efficient. And so that can have a big impact. And, and, and that's something that should we do more of? I think we should. We're actually Actually, ERCOT is in the, in, in the middle of a study right now with Texas A&M University where we're evaluating the potential in the state of Texas across the board for incremental energy efficiency investments and demand response, the reduction of, of demand when you need, when, uh, during scarce periods. And what we're trying to do is figure out what's the potential. What's the potential in Texas to that we that we could you know influence the amount of energy used with mm. those two things? How long before we know? We'll get the feedback on that study in December. We're going to bring that over to the Public Utility Commission and walk through the results, yeah. and then start looking at you know where should we be growing programs? Where should we be creating programs? Since we're talking about weatherization, let's talk about gas uh, uh, the, the, the gas pipelines because you know some of those froze as you know, and it led to the problems that we saw with uh, URI uh, back in 2021. Uh, there's been criticism that not enough has been done to winterize that infrastructure. Has enough been done there? I know that there's a lot of focus on the Railroad Commission, which is the regulator for the gas industry here in Texas. They have a significant focus. And I've heard updates that have said that thousands and thousands of wellheads and points have been inspected and weatherized since last, uh, since last winter. So I believe that they are focused on it. I know it's important to them to be able to serve their customers. Uh, we don't have any role in that oversight but personally. Top doesn't, but it affects us deeply because obviously they're the fuel to the thermal dispatchable fleet that uh, that operates in Ericot. And so we have a close partnership and we work closely with them. We've got an organization where we meet regularly to make sure that everybody's working on their respective parts to make sure that the grid always stays reliable. One other question about URI, and, and I hate mm -hmm. to keep going back Just to it. Just one? It, I have one too. It, okay. My last question about URI. Uh, we keep going back to it though because it, it was just such a seminal moment uh, in, in this state's history. Um, I know that you all do the modeling for this December based upon um, winter storm Elliot, which was last December, which wasn't nearly as severe as Yuri was. Um, have you run the numbers as to you know what kind of risk we're looking at for for forced outages if we had another URI event? Yeah, we, we we run models that reflect the most extreme weather that we've seen in history, and and all the way down to you know your regular everyday. And what does that look like? It, it looks worse. It looks a lot worse. Obviously, like three times as much. I've heard that from insiders that it could be three times as much of a risk. It it could potentially uh, the but you have to remember the likelihood and probabilities that you know. That was a one in, I don't know how many hundred year type storm. Are we going to see it again next year? You know, none of us can predict that. But we try to be ready for everything, and we try to do everything that's in our available toolbox to try to manage that risk. Is that the thing that keeps you up at night? It is, but but what I really focus more on is what's in our control. Mm -hmm. I can't control the weather, but what I can control is how effectively we administer the programs that are available to us. Mm -hmm. That's what I try to focus on and make sure that we're doing the right thing every day through the execution of that work. Pablo, I was reading after Winter Storm Uri, there were a lot of recommendations, obviously, as we covered. We all know, we all know about those. Uh, cold weather preps for natural gas companies, though, are only 20% complete. I know you're not in charge of natural gas companies, but do you ever get on the line like, come on, guys, let, let, let's get this done because we are winterizing power generation mm -hmm. and transmission 
but none of that stuff matters if you can't get gas into natural gas in to what half of our power generation in the state right yeah I, I think it has to be a it has to be a focus for the industry I know that they're they're prioritizing in terms of the most critical parts of their infrastructure to ensure that they can continue to meet the needs of the gas uh, the, the, the gas electric supply as well as the you know home heating that is you know critical obviously for for their business too but uh, I, I can tell you from the conversations that I've had with the Railroad Commission as well as with the operators in the gas industry, they're very focused on reliability and they recognize the importance of being ready for winter. It's been two years though. Yeah. I mean, do you ever look at the calendar like, come on guys, we got to, we, we got we to gotta get this going a I, I've got a, I've got a lot on my plate, Jason, <laughs> to focus on with making sure that the electric grid is ready to go. On. Is that what you're saying? I'm going to focus yeah. on the things that I can help influence and help to drive and do everything I can to try to manage the, the risk on our business. Well, I guess, business. of course, too, that could be one of those calls that you make to the governor and let him call them. That probably would I'll, get that ball rolling. I'll, I'll, I'll let others focus on, on their industries and I'll focus on ours. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, so you are just a little bit more than a year on the job now. That's um, right. This is your first podcast? <laughs> this is my first podcast. I've done a few interviews here and there, but I've not done a podcast before. Interesting. Well, I'm glad that you, you picked the politics for that. Absolutely. Uh, a little more than a year on the job. You started last October 1st, I believe it was. Uh, somebody had told me the other day, and I don't know if this is true, that ERCOT's been around for about a quarter of a century. And mm -hmm. to date, there have only been two CEOs who quit or retired. All the rest were let go. Why did you, first of all, is that right? I've heard that's. I've heard it actually worse. I heard there's only one person that's oh, ever retired from uh, <laughs> from this job before. And but, why uh, is a good idea? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can why, do this. Why would you? T why did you take this job? I mean, you're familiar with the retail side of this. Why did you take this job? Because it's important work, and you know, all of us I think strive to do something that's meaningful and important in our careers, and this this job had an opportunity to have an impact on something that's really important. And I love this industry. I've been working in the industry in various ways for over two decades. And I want to continue to have an impact. And I just, I, I love Texas. I've lived here before. I spent a couple of years here earlier in my career. I know the kind of changes that the grid is going through and that the industry is going through. And I know that Texas is at the forefront. So if you get an opportunity to be at the forefront of an industry that's changing rapidly and to do something that's important, it was a great opportunity. Do you ever worry, though, about being scapegoated down the road and, and you know, being added to that pile that came before you? I've got enough worries. That's, I, I don't need to worry about that. No, I, I, I worry on what I can do every day, what our team can do every day to help drive and advance you know, the, the mission, the vision, the values of this organization. And I know that I know we're making progress. And I, and I hope that the more we can talk about what we're doing, like with you and others, that folks will kind of understand, you know, this is, this is what ERCOT's about. And, and ERCOT's that, here, you know, to, to help us and, and work that team with us. you're talking about has gotten bigger too and it's going to get even bigger yeah as the grid has gotten more complicated i'm focused on making sure we have all the resources that we need to help manage all that complexity it takes people um you know the the type of 20 years ago we ran a grid where if we knew what the temperature was going to be outside it was pretty simple to balance this grid today it's a whole different world we have to do it completely differently so we need a lot more people we're a big we're a big technology company we're running technology platforms that are changing every single day and we need to make sure that we keep up with the latest trends in technology and and do that while we're managing all the all the things we've been talking about you likened it to uber before we started recording yeah there's explain the, that yeah so you know uber is a platform that you know that they don't really own any of 
the assets of their business. They don't know any of the cars and the drivers don't belong to them. They don't uh, work for them. However, what they do is they have a platform that matches supply and demand. And that's what uh, ERCOT does. We try to match supply and demand and pricing changes if, if supply you know that falls behind. And, and it's, a, it's actually a similar kind of a business model. Speaking oh. of supply and demand, I know we're taking, uh, we're running into the red territory here ourselves, taking your time. Uh, what else you got going on today? So we've got, you know, market participants in here talking about electric and gas coordination and making sure that uh, the industries are always aligned and working together and making sure they uh, we understand what each other's do. I'm going to go talk this afternoon to a group of ex uh, steel mill executives that are in town having an annual conference. Talk about, you know, what's going on with the grid, what's going on with their business. I try to understand how our consumers use our product, what we can do to help them and help them understand kind of what's going on in our world. Last thing here, we'll let you go. A uh, quick lightning round. Do you have solar panels in your house? I do not. Do you have a generator at your house? I do not. What is the, uh, are neighbors glad they live next to you because they know their, their lights won't be going off if, if things get bad? You know, I'm, I'm, I haven't spent a whole lot of time getting to know the neighbors yet, so <laughs> I'm, not working, sure, huh? I'm not sure if they would uh, know one way and, or the other. And, and then the, the, the last thing I was curious about, we saw record demand this year, 85,000 megawatts. Uh, what does the future look like 10 years out in your modeling? Any idea? Yeah, we're, we're seeing growth of, you know, three, four, 5% every year, baseline growth. That is three, four, five times the national average over the last 20 years. So 2030, what are we looking at megawatt-wise? Any idea? Oh, it's 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 easily could be upwards of a uh, you know 100,000 uh, megawatts uh, or above. And 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 I have confidence that this market is going to respond. We're going to see the resources to built to ser to serve it, and we're going to get we're going to be creative in how we do that with technology and with innovation. Yeah, you're going to have to be because Absolutely. again, it takes these plants so long. That's it's almost a, a race, and it sounds like it's almost built to be a losing race, you've got to somehow amp this up. Necessity is the mother of invention, and that, that has never been truer than, than in a market like this. We need to find ways to meet this growing demand, because the demand is going to come, and we're going to find ways to do so. Pablo, thank you for the time. We appreciate it. Absolutely. It's nice to meeting both of you. Enjoyed my first podcast. Yeah, thank you for making us your first. Yeah, absolutely. Click subscribe and get Yolitics every week. Yolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas.